Hello and welcome to Sunset Sunrise Ministries. My name is Kirk and my wife Jody here. Hi, we're going to share some things with you tonight. Um, we decided that it was really important to us that we share our testimony um, because, you know, when God does something amazing in your life, it's important to share it, not just keep it to yourself. So I guess I'm going to kick things off. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> in 2019, our world was completely turned upside down. Kirk had a heart attack. But before we get into telling you about the heart attack, I'm going to back up and tell you a little bit of history about us. Uh, we're from Oklahoma. We've got five kids. We just had our sixth grandchild. We're expecting number seven in April. My husband worked for the same company for over 20 years. And in July or in uh, 2018, that job just halted. It stopped. We had been traveling. We traveled to several places over the years. And one of our travels took us to Belize, and we absolutely fell in love with it. Well, after he lost his job, um, or after the job stopped, I should say, um, we decided we had already planned on going to Belize in June. And so we just decided that maybe this is going to be the last time we get to look, to go. We'll just go. So we went ahead with our plans. We went to Belize. While we were there, we just kind of had this idea that, you know what, maybe we can speed up our retirement plans. <laughs> And see if there's a business opportunity there that maybe we could invest his retirement money into. And we could go ahead and move there now because we had always planned on going there at some point in our lives. But we figured it'd be at least another 10 years down the road. However, that kind of changed. We got there. We found a little cafe with a bike rental. It fell into place. That whole deal was done in like 30 minutes. It was very quick. Um, we felt like it was exactly the right thing, like God was pointing us in that direction. It felt like home. It felt like what we were supposed to be doing. We were excited. We were ecstatic. We came home. We packed and we moved to Belize three weeks later. We couldn't believe it. We thought, man, we're living our dream early. Mm -hmm. We're getting to do something that we thought we'd do someday. But, I mean, we're still in our late 40s at that time. So, Anyway, we went ahead and moved. We started up our cafe about a month after we moved there, and we made lots of friends. And we already had a few friends there already, but um, we made lots of friends. We met people from literally all over the world. We got to talk to people. We got to answer questions. We li literally lived uh, a block from the beach, if that. Um, we rode our bikes to and from work every day along the beach. We got to watch the sun come up every morning over the ocean. It was amazing. And we didn't expect to ever be anywhere else. Um, so that was in July of 2018. In 2019, we were planning on our first visit home. We were really excited about coming home to see the kids. Um, and uh, my parents and his parents. And so we made this plan. And about a week before we left, Kirk was having a few little problems that we were concerned, and we went to the local doctor and got him checked, and she did a an EKG and said, hey, everything looks just fine. I think it's just, you know, something minor, so you're, you should be safe to fly. We figured, okay, she's, you know, a very nice lady. You seem to have a, a little knowledge, so we decided we'd get him checked out at the VA when we got home, but we felt pretty comfortable getting on the airplane. So on July 23rd of 2019, my husband and I, Kirk, got on an airplane in Belize City, and we had a two-hour layover in Houston, and then we would be home to Oklahoma that, that evening at about, I think around 11, we were supposed to be in Tulsa. 
We made it to Belize City. Everything was fine. We had some breakfast there. We landed in Houston. Everything was fine until we got off the airplane. We got off the airplane, Kirk. You want to explain what you remember about getting off the airplane? <clears throat> well, you know, I, I, I don't remember a whole lot of it. In fact, I don't even, uh, to this day, don't remember leaving Belize. Uh, but I do remember bits and pieces of in the airport, uh, walking, trying to catch my breath, feeling uh, lightheaded. Uh, everything just seemed to be moving super fast around me, and I just had trouble just walking so uh, at that point <clears throat> I don't remember a whole lot until uh, waking up so I'll let you finish okay that. well so anyway basically he was doing all of the telltale signs at that point of somebody that was having was in cardiac distress or having a heart attack he was sweating profusely he was pale he couldn't walk he was having really bad chest pains he sat down every few steps I didn't think we were ever going to make it through that airport. I didn't know what was going to happen. So um, it is the quickest we've ever gone through airport security before. <laughs> we went through the TSA checkpoint um, where you have to scan in your passport and all that kind of stuff. That was not a problem. But then when we got to the um, security check where they have to, you know, do the x-rays and all that kind of stuff. When we got up to that gate, this woman there said, are you guys okay? And I said, no, something's wrong. She took us to the front of the line, which was pretty long in Houston, and uh, took us directly to the front, moved Kirk through. I took our luggage and put it on the belt and got through as quickly as I possibly could. And he sat down. And um, we had a, happened to have a paramedic that was from Belize City that had been watching from a distance. We didn't even know it. He came up to us and said, Hey, I'm a paramedic from Belize City. I was on the plane with you guys. I've been watching. And I noticed he looked like he was in distress. He asked for aspirin. He ch took Kirk's pulse. He, um, you know, just, he stayed with us. It was amazing. He stayed with us all the way until the um, paramedic crew got to the airport. Um, they ran an EKG at the airport. Uh, told us that everything looked fine, but his pulse was kind of racing. So they couldn't really confirm anything there. They just said that, you know, he obviously looked like there was a little bit of a problem. And the chief of that group told us, uh, that we needed to get to the hospital and get checked out. And I explained to him, you know, we don't have insurance. And he said, ma'am, this is the state of Texas. We'll take care of you. And I thought, <laughs> okay, great. I was worried, but, you know, I also knew that that was something we needed to do. So we got to the hospital. I called my mother <laughs> from somebody else's phone because, again, we don't have working United States cell phones anymore. Um, I had my cell phone, but it was no longer connected to anybody except in Belize when it didn't work here in Houston. So uh, I borrowed a nurse's cell phone. I called my mother and I explained to her to please stop the kids from going to the airport to pick us up because we wouldn't be there. And uh, she said, okay. I told her that they thought that Kirk might have been having a heart attack and we were at the emergency room. So that two-hour layover got a lot longer. We didn't have any idea how long it was going to be at that point. Yeah. Um, we were taken to uh, Memorial Hermann Southeast in Houston, Texas. <clears throat> took several hours for them to say, hey, yeah, you had a heart attack. They had to take his blood levels uh, or his, uh, what was it called, troponin levels mm -hmm. yep. over several hours period of time. And those levels, of course, went up and up and up, which is how they can tell that you're having a heart attack. <clears throat> now, I do remember one part <laughs> uh, <clears throat> after that, and that was getting into the ambulance. Oh, yeah, that was interesting. And asking the uh, 
paramedic about the nitro. Yeah, they put a nitro tablet <clears throat> under Kirk's pill or under his tongue and told him that it would help with the chest pain. Which, you know, of course, I'm wanting to know, is it nitro that's going to make me blow up or make me go fast? I wasn't sure which yeah. one it was. He was, he was cracking jokes. Yes. Yes. That part I do remember now. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, um, when they discovered he, in fact, was having a heart attack, they went ahead and admitted him into the hospital and basically told us that he was going to have a cardiac um, catheterization done the next day. They were going to go in and see if there was some blockage or something causing it. So um, we woke up the next day at the hospital. Of course, it was late. We didn't get to stop and get our burger in the hospital, so we were starving by the time we got there. I think the nurses brought us some sandwiches out of their refrigerator and some Jello or something. I don't remember any of that. Yep. So anyway, um, we had this really lovely meal at the hospital, but it was great. We were there. We slept. We woke up the next morning. My brother, who at the time was in oil sales, uh, happened to be in Houston and came by to see us. I hadn't seen him for a year, so that was kind of cool. Anyway, a little bit later on that afternoon, they did the procedure. And discovered that his LVAD, that Widowmaker artery, was 99% blocked. So they put in two stents. After his procedure, it took about three hours to do it all. The doctor called me in, showed me the blockage, showed me how it was all cleared up. Of course, anybody that's ever had a stent procedure knows it's very routine. He explained to me that Kirk was going to have to be on these antiplatelet medications for at least two years. And that he cannot miss them, especially those first few months, because... If he blocked one of those stents, it would kill him. And the very, I guess the first few months is when it's highly, it's more common to have a stent blockage. So I said, okay. I remember him saying that very clearly because um, our sons decided to drive from Oklahoma to see us after hearing that Kirk had had a heart attack. They were worried. They, they just, they hadn't seen us for a year, so they came to see us. They got to the hospital early uh, the next morning, about four o'clock in the morning. And we were all just talking. Kirk had actually gotten up and taken a shower because they brought us clothes <laughs> since all of our clothes had gone on to Oklahoma. And so Kirk had gotten up and taken a shower after having that stent procedure and changed clothes. And I changed clothes and took a shower and, you know, you're putting on fresh clothes cause we've been wearing the same thing for two days and, uh, expecting that we were going to get discharged from the hospital that afternoon and be able to go ahead and get on a flight and fly home. Um, after our showers, we were sitting and we were just talking to the kids and, um, my old, our oldest son, Jake went and got some coffee for him and his dad. And they were taking just a few sips of coffee. I think Kirk had only had one sip out of that cup. And all of a sudden his cup fell from his hand and I was talking to our other son, so I didn't really see it happen. But, um, Jake just yelled, dad. And then he ran out into the hallway and he got the nurse to come in. He ripped the emergency cord thing in the bathroom completely out of the wall, I think, in in just frustration and wanting to get somebody there quickly. Anyway, the nurses and everybody came in and they immediately went over to the wall, hit the button, and called a code blue. I never thought I would hear those words in relation to my husband, but I did for the first time right then. And the code blue? Meant that he was dying. Mm. And he was in cardiac Full on cardiac is shutting down. Everything is not working. It is, he's not breathing. He is going to die if they don't do something. And so they came in, they did some chest compressions. They shocked him once. And within about four minutes, they got him back. That scared the crud out of me. (laughs) And uh, when he came back, 
He was, he was coherent. He was really worn out, but he was coherent. They quickly got him back to the cath lab. And that doctor said that he was in the one percentile of people who are Plavix resistant. So they switched him to another medication called Berlinta. Um, and obviously it's successful because he's still here, but, um, they did have to go ahead and put one more stent in place. And now he has three stents in his heart. Anyway, um, we thought, okay, now they're going to move us into ICU. They're going to keep us another couple of days. Everything's fine. That was great. We're grateful to God that he, uh, allowed that to happen at the hospital. Had that happened after we got in the car to go home, he would have died in the car. So... We felt like God was in control of the situation. I wasn't really freaked out or anything at that point. I mean, until that point, I really felt pretty good about everything that had happened because the hospital staff had jumped into, you know, what they were supposed to do. And every, everybody had taken care of him and he was still talking to me and everything. So, you know, that was basically where we were at at that point. Um... So we were, our, our son, our youngest son went ahead and went back home. He had to go back to work, but our oldest son decided, Hey, he, he was going to stay there and hang out with us. <laughs> and, um, we would just take him on the flight with us if we needed to, or maybe they would come back and pick us up and we'd ride home in the car together knowing we were going to be there a couple more days. So, um, that evening it was probably, Oh, I can't remember nine or 10 o'clock at night. We all decided to go to bed. Jake couldn't sleep in the room where we were at. He had to sleep out in the waiting room, which was fine. No big deal. Um, we got all set up to go to sleep. Uh, and I went to bed. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I got up. Of course, you know, I'm a woman over 40, so I had to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night at least once. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I got up to go to the bathroom. And um, I noticed that Kirk was making a strange noise. And I walked over to him and I said, hey, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm okay. I said, are you sure? And he said, yep. I said, okay. So I had one of those lovely hospital reclining chairs that are very uncomfortable to sleep in. So I got back in that chair and as soon as I reclined it, I heard that noise again and I knew something was not right. So I got up, I turned the light on and when I looked at Kirk, he was doing the same thing he had done that morning, which was not breathing, making a strange noise like he was choking. <clears throat> and so I ran out into the hallway. Well, now at that point, was I wearing my CPAP? <laughs> he was wearing, Kirk does wear a CPAP at night, and the our CPAP, of course, had gone on to Oklahoma as well. So they had a big, huge hospital BiPAP machine is what they called it. <clears throat> and it was like a full face mask style. So I ran out the hallway and got the nurses and thinking that they're going to have to take that off. And they said, no, 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 leave it on, leave it on. And, um, but after just a minute or two, they had to take it off as well because they were doing chest compressions and they had to get the other, the bag style thing on him. Um, they started doing chest compressions, but when they took that CPAP off machine off of him, um, these two big, huge guys came in to start doing the chest compressions. And between the two of them, I think they did 25 or 26 or 27 rotations, um, of of chest compressions on him and in the meantime Kirk started to bite through his tongue and lip and so they had to do several things to get him to quit doing that um how far did I bite through my lip um my you tongue? bit almost all the way through your tongue and you bit into your lip pretty deep hmm. um well it still works yeah they both still work um <laughs> anyway <sighs> they um 
after a couple of minutes, they escorted me out of the room. And I didn't really understand what was going on at that point. I just thought, well, they got him back once. They'll they'll just do what they got to do and they'll bring him back again. It was kind of, you know, I was in shock, I think. However, after another couple of minutes, there's a chaplain that came up to stand next to me. And I realized at the point that that chaplain asked me if there was anything he could do for me and asked if he could pray for me, I realized that they were getting me out of the room and they brought the chaplain up because this is what they do when somebody dies. This is what they do when somebody's about to die. And I think later on we researched it and we found out that it's about 25 minutes. That Right around that time is usually when they stop doing chest compressions. They were preparing me to say bye. Mm. And about halfway through that, Jake came running into the hallway where I was at and held on to me for dear life and was praying to God, please don't take my dad. Please don't take my dad. And um, we both sat there and cried and prayed in each other's arms. Um, you know, we both watched this happen more than once here, you know. So um, in that 25 minutes, I called a couple of family members to tell them, hey, I don't think he's going to make it. I, you know, like I didn't know what to do. It was kind of a strange place to be in. You have a long period of time where you're watching them do this. They shocked him twice and got no pulse. I heard them say no pulse after the first one and after the second one. And I just, I needed to tell somebody else that wasn't there because there were so many people not there. I just wanted somebody to know, hey, something's wrong here. And um, finally, when they shocked him the third time, they got a very faint pulse. And I remember just exhaling. I felt like I was finally exhaling. So I was allowed to go back in the room. I had to stay way off to the side. There was a team of people in there for quite a while. They took him back to the cath lab again. There was no blockage this time. They didn't know what was wrong. Um, a few minutes after that, all of our kids at that point had started heading towards Houston. They all knew that they needed to get there, that there was something wrong. Kirk's brother happened to be visiting from California, him and his wife, Tammy, um, and two of their kids and they all were, happened to be in Houston. They had just gone to the hot, to the hotel first to sleep. And they showed up after I got a hold of them at the hospital. And they watched how unstable he was. He was twitching and jerking. And the, all the levels were going up and down on everything. And they, the, they, were, they were in there constantly for a while trying to get everything stable. And I remember that Jake and I and Frank and Tammy and TJ and Journey all stood there stunned at towards the foot of his bed, just kind of in a row. Some of us with tears, some of us just shocked. It didn't, it didn't seem real what we were watching. And, um, Tammy, thank goodness is a nurse. And she was explaining a lot of the things to me that I didn't understand, like the oxygen levels and stuff on his, on the machines, which was nice. Anyway, uh, shortly after that, they left because, you know, he, they'd gotten him back. So they left, they hadn't slept. Um, they went back to their hotel asleep and right after they left, he coded a third time. Um, even with all the machines, you know, monitoring him, he coded anyway. And they came in and did the chest compressions that time. It didn't last very long. They got him back pretty quickly. It was about seven minutes. Um, so at that point I had a team of doctors come in and talk to me and they basically explained that Kirk was in what they called an electrical storm. They, they called it a VT storm um, and that he was in cardiogenic shock. 
And uh, both of those terms, I didn't even have a clue what they meant, but they basically said it was like his body was in an electrical storm. Things were misfiring and it wasn't cooperating with each other. So he just kept staying in that state of not being stable and coding. And they said that they really couldn't do anything more. And the very best thing for Kirk, the only thing they knew of, was to have him sent to their medical center. Um, the problem with going to the medical center was that it was... Uh, at least a 45-minute drive by ambulance. And he wouldn't survive an ambulance ride, so he had to be lifelighted. And he had to have a bed available in the cardiac ICU wing. He had to have a doctor agree to take his case on, because, again, we had no insurance. And so at that time, they had no beds available. And they explained it to me that, you know, this is, it could take a while to get all this approved and we don't know if he'll last long enough to get it approved. Well, within two hours, everything had been handled. Um, we had a team of people in Oklahoma and all over the place praying. They got Kirk onto the Life Flight helicopter and, uh, you know, Memorial Hermann just so happens to be where Life Flight started. That's the guy that helped found Life Flight was from that hospital that was part of that hospital and so um when they put him on the helicopter jake and i got into a cab and we went to the medical center to be where kirk was um we let everybody know they're transferring him this is what's going on everybody started heading towards the medical center shortly after we got there about that time our young our oldest daughter and youngest daughter both were almost to Houston, so we waited while they took Kirk directly into surgery to put in what they called an impella pump, and it was uh, one of those lovely machines that helps your heart to pump like it's supposed to. They were hoping doing that would cause him to stabilize. It was probably 11 o'clock that night. Um, maybe, maybe it was earlier. It just felt like it was really late. Everybody was finally at the hospital. We were waiting to hear from the doctors. Jake actually snuck back one time trying to look and see if he could find something out. And they chased him out. <clears throat> but um, the doctor finally sent for me. And I was taken into a room by myself with this doctor. And I still remember the way he looks. I still can see his face in my mind. And um, he called me in. Kirk was in the room with us. And there was a team of people in there, probably six or seven people in there, working to try to still stabilize him, even with the impella pump. And that doctor explained to me that Kirk was still not stabilizing. And I said, okay. And of course, we, you know, we've gone through a lot of shocking things. So I think I was just kind of on autopilot at this time. And I said, okay, I understand. And he said, um, things don't look very good right now. He's just not getting stable. He said, but we have this one last ditch effort we can make. You don't want to hear, I mean, you do want to hear a doctor say that there's a last-ditch effort that they can make, but you don't expect to hear that in connection with your spouse. So, <clears throat> I listened to the doctor. He explained they could add what was called an ECMO machine to the impella pump, and it would hopefully together that they would do enough to stabilize him. And I said, okay. And... um I was willing, you know, like, whatever whatever we need to do, if we can keep them, then that'd be great. Um, so I signed the paperwork for them to do it. The doctor asked me if I had any questions, and I said, yes, I have one. Is he going to come off of these machines? And he told me that it's likely he would not. Likely he would not come off of those machines. 
he asked me if I had family there and I said, yes, all of our kids are coming or they're on their way. And he said, okay, good. He said, you need to prepare everybody. And it dawned on me as I was walking back out that this doctor basically just told me that they're going to take this, do this one last ditch effort to save his life, but it's probably not going to work. We probably need to prepare for him dying, which I've already seen happen earlier that day, more than once. And I thought, okay, this is what's happening. That's when it finally sunk in that things were not okay. And um, I know that you would think that it was when the chaplain was there, but I was still really so in shock by all that was going on until that doctor told me what he said right then. I don't think it really hit me what was going on. So I walked back out and I explained to all of the kids what, what had happened and what they were doing. And so we waited until the ECMO was successfully installed. We found out from the other doctor who helped him with the surgery that Kirk actually coded one last time in surgery for the ECMO. <clears throat> so all the kids, after we knew that Kirk was kind of a little bit more stable, all went back to their hotels to sleep, except for Jake, because Jake um, at that time didn't have a car and <laughs> wasn't married, so and still isn't. Um, he slept out in the waiting room. He really did, just didn't want to leave the hospital. Um, so I went into that room that night, um, not really knowing what to do, not really knowing what to expect. I walked into an overwhelming site. There were tubes coming out of both sides of his neck. He was, ah, goodness, he was on all kinds of stuff. Um, during that time, he was on a hypothermic machine to cool his body down. He was on a dialysis machine because your kidneys are the first things to go. They're the sacrificial organs whenever you have that kind of a problem. Uh, so his kidneys had shut down completely. Um, he was on an ECMO machine and the impella pump both, which were both going... Pushing and pulling. Pushing and pulling, you know, every operating every part of his heart. Um, very large tubes uh, going into his groin area on both sides, um, sewn to his legs so that they wouldn't get knocked out because he'd bleed to death. Um, he had uh, a ventilator, of course. So I was looking at that, plus these three IV trees in there that were full of all kinds of medication going into his body to try to stabilize him. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And there was things going off, little alerts and stuff on the machines and stuff. And I thought, how in the world do I even sleep? I've got to, but I didn't want to leave the room either. And uh, I'd had a few songs playing in my mind during that day. And um, I had a little couch bed thing at the very foot of, of where Kirk was at, up against the window in the hospital. And I went to try to lay down. They brought me some pillows and blankets. It was freezing cold in that room. And this little nurse stayed in the room with Kirk all night with this ECMO specialist. They ran circles around him all night. But I was so exhausted at this point. I'd barely slept for several days, barely eaten. And um, I remember I was laying down that night trying to go to sleep, but also knowing I wanted to pray something. And I just, I didn't even have words, you know. And um, I was wearing Kirk's wedding ring with a necklace around my neck. And I was reminded of a miracle that happened to my grandma. She had a miraculous healing before when my mother was a little girl. And uh, I had heard about it all my life. And so I remember just thinking, Lord... I want that for my husband. And 
there was a psalm that third day sings called show me your glory and i prayed just the chorus over kirk i said lord show me your glory send your presence into this room i gotta see your face in this god just show me your glory not knowing really what i was even asking for i just knew i wanted god to show up and so i was able to go to sleep for about four or five hours that night and uh, i woke up feeling very refreshed but there was a, a nurse in there that morning who um, I introduced myself to. Her name was Maureen. She explained to me that in the five years that she had been at that hospital that only two people had successfully come off of those machines. So I was thinking, okay, that's not real great statistics, but okay. And I just remember looking at her and very confidently saying, Kirk's going to walk out of here. And she just kind of went, okay. I don't even think I believed it at the time. I just was trying to say something like he's not going to be one of those statistics. I didn't want her to think that he was going to go down that road. I, was, I had to try to hold on to anything. So up until this point, I've had exactly what all wrong with me. Um, at that point, Kirk had died four times for about 45 minutes in total. He was in kidney failure. Uh, during the time he was in the hospital, which was a total of 27 days, he developed sepsis and pancreatitis. He had a large hematoma in his back from the impella pump. He ran a fever on and off. He was on a ventilator. He was on that hypothermic state. He was on the ECMO machine, the impella pump. He was on a ventilator, and he was on a slow and steady dialysis machine. Mm. All of that at once. Just a few things. Yeah, it was overwhelming. <clears throat> so... But I remember the scripture too. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And I knew that I had prayed and asked God to do something. I just didn't know what he would do or how. Well, that morning happened to be our granddaughter's birthday. Uh, Sarah Grace was turning uh, three. And it was on the 27th of July. And um, I went down to get some coffee and get her a little birthday present because she had come with her parents, her and her sisters. And, uh, you know, grandchildren are great therapy when you're going through something hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I went down and I did that. And as I was coming back, um, the cafeteria and all that was on the main first floor, but there was a little cafe that was on the second floor. And I went to that cafe, and I got a muffin and some coffee. And I was heading back upstairs to get on the elevator to go back up to the fifth floor where Kirk was at. And as I was almost to the elevator, I heard these two women behind me, and one of them said, Oh, it's Judgment Day. And I thought, Oh, Lord, I can't get on the elevator with these people. I've had enough happen. I don't need to hear anything about Judgment Day on the way up the elevator. So I kind of jokingly just said, I don't think I want to get on the elevator with you. And she just laughed and she goes, oh, honey, it's not your Judgment Day, but it's a day of reckoning. And I thought, what a strange thing to say. I can look back at that now and think it was not strange at all. But at that moment, it sounded very odd. And so I just went, I just wanted to get back up to Kirk. So I got on the elevator. I pushed five. The other lady that was with her was standing right next to me, and she looked at me, kind of quietly said, do you have someone here? And I said, yeah, my husband. And she said, is he going to be okay? And I think at the time I told her he had died seven times. It felt like seven. 
Um, I think we we were talking or counting at one point because he had kind of gone through so many things and we thought it was more than it was, but he'd only coded actually four times. I think I said seven to her or six. And I, anyway, I told her, I said, he's died multiple times, but God's brought him back every time. And she said, yeah, that's what God does. And I said, yeah, I know. And I was in tears even just trying to talk to her about that little bit. And so we got up to the fifth floor. I mean, it didn't take long. Going from the second floor to the fifth floor does not take long, but that was said during that moment. And uh, as I was about to get off the elevator, she just kind of stopped and touched me on the arm. And she and I turned around and looked at her, and she pointed right in my face with her index finger. And she said, you watch boldly. You watch what God does. And I in, instantly had goosebumps. And the elevator door shut. I never saw her again. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I knew that God had sent them to that elevator that day to encourage me and to give me hope for whatever it was he was going to do next. And about that time, I most of the, everybody had arrived. I went out and as people showed up, I was telling all of them about what these two ladies had, had said, you know, the elevator experience. Because I was just in awe of what had just happened. And... um after that, I still had a conversation with the kids. Hey, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm hoping God does a miracle here. But if he doesn't, we've not. We've got to make some plans. We've kind of, kind of discussed those things that you don't want to discuss. But I knew we had to look at it realistically also. So we talked a little bit. And then we decided, I decided, that uh, we would just rotate. We would, two people at a time could only go into that room. So I said, okay, well, our oldest daughter and our youngest daughter had not been into Seekirk, really. And everybody else had seen him, and her and Kirk's brother had not been in there. And so I took Emily back there first. Emily is the daddy's girl. I wanted her to be first because I knew how badly she wanted to get in that room. And so we walked into the room together. I wanted to be there for her. We talked a little bit with the nurse. It was all very calm and peaceful. I knew Emily was in shock. This is the first time she's seen her dad in a year, and he's on full life support. <clears throat> So we stayed a few minutes, and I asked her, I said, well, let's go ahead and go. We'll get Sarah. We'll have her come back next, and so she did. Um, I took Sarah back there also. Her and I were talking to the nurse and kind of trying to find a couple things to laugh about, which is really difficult in the situation, but we just wanted to keep things light. And Sarah's pretty good at telling jokes and, you know, trying to make things a little less stressful sometimes. And um, she didn't really tell any jokes that day, but... We just tried to keep the conversation light. Well, I have a couple nicknames for my husband, like most people do. He's got nicknames for me as well. Mm. We won't go into those tonight. Um, anyway, I had always had this nickname. I always call him Sexy Man or Sexy. I don't know why. It's just what, well, I do know why. I've always thought he was very sexy. Anyway, um, as I was about to leave the room, I just... Gave him a kiss on the forehead. I said, okay, sexy man, we're going to leave, but we'll be back in a little while. I was going to let somebody else have a turn. And as I said those words, Kirk opened his eyes. And I said, Kirk? And he looked at me. And I said, do you know who I am? And he shook his head, yes. And I turned to Maureen, the nurse, and I said, he is awake. And she said, Mr. Bacon, can you move your feet? And he moved both of his feet. Mr. Bacon, can you squeeze my hand? And he did. And then she went around to the other side and he squeezed that hand. Or he squeezed her hand with his other hand. And then his 
his uh, stability on his heart, his heart rate and stuff kind of started to climb. So she had to give him some medication to calm him back down. But what was amazing in that moment was that Kirk had coded for 25 minutes and should not have normal brain function. He shouldn't be able to follow commands. He shouldn't know who we are. There should have been some deficits of some sort that were a lot more, that were major, at least. We learned in that moment that he was still there with us. I went out of the room with Sarah. We went outside excited. We told everybody what was going on. His brother and uh, his brother Frank and his wife Tammy were the next two to go back. He opened the, his eyes with them too. He didn't want them to leave the room. They tried to leave two or three times. He shook his head. No, Kirk does not remember this at all. No, nope. he didn't remember seeing his brother at all that whole time. <clears throat> didn't even know he was there. <clears throat> um. Anyway, so all of that happened, um, and then over the next twenty-seven days, um, during all of that time. Um, I, you know, he didn't just instantly wake up. That didn't happen. You know, that day he woke up after a few days. Um, well, he was on the hypothermic machine for two days. He was on the ECMO for five days. He was on the impella pump for six. He was on a ventilator for 12. He was on that slow and steady dialysis machine for 20 to 21 days. It took a long time. That two hour layover ended up being 27 days in that hospital. And when Kirk woke up, he was a different person. When he really woke up, wasn't really until that ventilator came out. So it was about that 12th day when he really woke up for the first time. And um, he was a completely changed man. And I didn't understand it at the time. And, um, but I've learned over these last few, this over the last year and a half, how very much God's changed him, but he's changed me as well. And um, so I'm going to let Kirk explain a little bit about what changed in his life during that time. Well, <clears throat> I woke up a very angry, mad, sad, frustrated, you name it, I, I had the feeling. You know, the anxiety levels... The uh, regrets, all of it. But I'm here. <clears throat> now I could choose to continue to to live mad and angry and, and sad because in that time of my life, I'd gone from a business owner to having a house, a vehicle to drive, a retirement uh decent health i could do a job i could work i didn't have to worry about breathing and and getting tired uh too quick <clears throat> you know that's all those things that that i i've got now and i wouldn't change it one step other than uh being here you know uh when i said i was angry I was angry at the fact that I had to come back here because during that 25 minutes of uh, being in, in heaven is just awestruck. That's all I, I mean. I'm just the feeling of it, <clears throat> the sight of it is just 
hard to explain to anybody. And I was so mad that I had to come back here. You know, I, I as a Christian, I would have been far more excited if, if God would have sent me to hell <laughs> and then back to here, to, to earth, because I'd have been, whew, boy, I'm glad I'm back here because hell really sucks, you know. But I got to go to heaven, and when you go to heaven and then come back here, it's really hard to be excited for this life. And that was, that's where the anger part really came in. Not the loss of, of my house, my business, my health. All that is just pointless. So that was the anger and all of the, the feeling that I had when I woke up and over the next three or four, five days, I guess. But the Lord had taught me in that time about 1 John 2, 15 and 16 and 17. Here, and I'm going to read it for you. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. And with that, <clears throat> it, it really put a focus on me on what I thought was important and what really is important. Mm -hmm. I fell into that groove that so many people do of thinking that I've got this world in my hands. I've got a direction I'm going in. I've got a goal. I've got to, you know, provide for my family. I got to work my uh, job till I can't work anymore, you know, and then eventually someday I'll get to retire and, enjoy the good life of, of this world. And all of those distractions uh, really is just, just what they are. They're just a distraction. They're not truths. Right. You know, they're, they're false things that have been taught to us. Right. So I'll give it back to you. I just, okay. <sighs> well, while we were in Belize, I mean, I'm just going to kind of briefly tell you what happened. Um, during the time that we were in Belize, we had a major water leak in our house. We did not sell our home here. We expected that we would come back and forth. <clears throat> and um, also, we live on some land that Kirk's parents also live on. Uh, we have 20 acres together. We each have a house on it. And so, of course, we couldn't sell our house because, you know, it's family. Yeah. And um, we didn't want to. We wanted to be able to come back and forth and be in both places. And anyway, we had a major water leak so bad that our whole house had to be gutted. And, um, I mean, completely gutted. <laughs> um, so we came home, um, when we left the hospital, let me just kind of back up a minute. When we came home from the hospital, we left, we got to the hospital July 23rd. We left the hospital August 19th. We drove eight hours. At that point, Kirk had not sat upright for longer than about 30 minutes at a time because he has something now called brainstem vertigo that when he sits up, upright now it's he's learned to kind of climatize to that now but at first when they would set him up 
he would, the whole room would spin so bad that his heart rate would skyrocket. And I'd lose my breath. And the he would lose his breath, the anxiety. Yeah, it was crazy. So, <clears throat> of course, now they've got him on anti-anxiety medication to help keep that part of it down. The, the dizziness does not go away. He lives with it now. Um, so, <laughs> he gets to live with my driving. <laughs> um, however, um, at that time, though, he had not, he had stood up a couple of times, but he had not walked at all. When we left that hospital, he was really not ready to leave. But they were ready to send him to an inpatient rehab facility in Houston. That was their plan. We had different plans. Mm. We did not want to be away from our family any longer. They also told me that I could not stay in that rehab facility with Kirk. And there was no way, you know, first of all, all the money that we had saved up for the vacation home and the trip back all got completely blown during the time that we were in the hospital on me eating meals and having to buy necessities there. Um, Life vests. Yeah. um, God had to, God provided um, money that came in from friends in order for us to be able to pay for his life vest that he had to leave with and his medications that we had to pay for out of pocket. Um, Those two things alone were over a thousand dollars. And, um, so we decided that we would just go back to Oklahoma and that we would do the rehab in Oklahoma. And the hospital reluctantly agreed. They said that they would do it if Kirk wore a life vest and if he drove and not flew. He, not flew. I can't even talk right. And didn't fly. They didn't think it was safe for him to fly yet. But the drive was eight hours. I mean, it was going to be stressful either way. But we felt like the driving was a little safer. So... um and it was. It, it, yeah, it was great. And plus, we got to stop at In-N-Out Burger yeah, in Dallas on the way home. I got my hamburger. He got took, his burger. <laughs> took 20-some days to get <clears throat> Yes. <clears throat> so um, our son came and picked us up. We drove home. Kirk did just fine the whole way home. He sat up. I think it was just such a relief and such a, you know, just so much stress off of your shoulders when you're finally just away from that hospital. And... Um, so we showed up at my mom and dad's house at about 11 o'clock that night, which was about the time we should have gotten off the plane in Tulsa to begin with. Mm. Um, and we, the very first steps Kirk took was with two of our kids on each side of him, walking him, literally holding him up so he could walk through the door because he was not strong enough to hold himself up at that point. Um, got him through the door um, and into a recliner where he sat and rested. It was literally only about 20 feet from the car to that recliner. Um, he rested for about 30 minutes. And then uh, the kids had to leave because they had work the next morning. And so they helped get him up one more time and take another probably 20 or 30 steps into the bedroom that we were going to be sleeping in. And uh, we finally got him into the bedroom. It was such a, just a relief to be home. Hmm. It wasn't our home, but it was home. It was out of the hospital, out of the hospital, and with family. And my parents um, have a house that is—it's two levels, but the main living area is on one floor, and so uh, we couldn't come to our house. You know, it had steps, and it was—you know—had mold. <laughs> so we spent uh, the next year and a half with my parents, and um, during that time. Um, we were home for a whole whopping eight days before Kirk got a wound infection where that ECMO had gone into his leg. 
Uh, we ended up going to get it checked out, thinking it was going to, they just clean it up a little bit, send us back home. It ended up being a surgical procedure with a cardiovascular specialist at Oklahoma Heart Institute and, um, or OSU Medical Center, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, they had to debride it. We were in the hospital for a full week. He came home with a wound back and IV medication that I had to give him twice a day for the next two weeks. The day I gave him the last dose of the IV medication, he decided to get a nosebleed for the first time in his life. Mm -hmm. And we ended up back in the hospital for another three days with rhino rockets. Which is enjoyable, let oh, me yeah. tell you. Kirk Levy. All of those of you who have had to have the COVID test, I'm telling you these rhino rockets are a million times worse. Be grateful if you've never had a nosebleed like that. Anyway... He came home from the hospital. We have not had to go back into the hospital. Knock on wood. Well, that's because we don't plan. We don't plan meals anymore. Yeah, every time we plan to go either. eat out, if we if we really plan to go eat out when we're going to a doctor's appointment, he's going to end up in the hospital again. So we just don't do that we don't anymore. Do that. No. We play it by ear now. Yes. So, um, but during the time that we've been at my parents' house, besides those two hospital visits, um, Kirk was on a wound vac until mid October. So from July until mid-October, he had not showered. We were talking sponge bath city. Um, when he, The day he got the wound back off, he got to have that first shower. He was in heaven. Uh, well, not really heaven. He was in... It was enjoyable. It was very enjoyable. Yeah. Um, anyway, and he also was able to finally start walking on his own at that point. Mm -hmm. He had been doing some exercises. He had gotten around a little bit with a wheelchair and moved his legs a lot more during that time, but he really wasn't walking until then. Um, that is when he, that everything changed. We were able to start doing cardiac rehab, I think in November, finally. Um, he, he did the cardiac rehab. Um, also during that time, we put our cafe in Belize for sale. Mm -hmm. And um, we had some very good friends that lived there that went and packed up all of our personal belongings for us and stored them in their house. And um, we were not able to sell that business. We had a couple of possibilities. They both fell through. Um, just a series of events happened. And then COVID happened and everything got shut down in Belize. But, but before, you know, we lost the business before COVID happened. We would have lost it anyway. Had we not had all of this happen, we still would have lost everything because we've got a lot of friends that lost everything during that time. Because of COVID. Because of COVID, because it shut down tourism, which is the primary you know, way that we would have made a living there. Um, so God took us out of harm's way before it could get really bad for us. And, um, but, you know, that was our retirement. So we had made plans. You know, we had made plans. We were going to go to Belize. We were going to live there, and that was going to be our retirement. We thought that was what we were going to be doing. Yep. God changed it all in a day. He decided that we weren't going to live in Belize anymore, that we were going to come home and stay home. You know, it just so happens that we only had one-way plane tickets because we weren't exactly sure what day we were going <clears> to <throat> go home on yet. Yeah, That was not a coincidence. Um it just so happens that our house got the water damage. God knew that was going to happen. He knew we were supposed to be with my parents during that time. It was a, a little bit better location for us with all of the uh, hospice nurse, not hospice, the health, home health nurses that came in, occupational therapy, cardiac therapy. My parents also had to give us a car to use. And so all of those things were available right there. It was very convenient for all the things that we did, but it was also a time for spiritual healing for us to reconnect with our church family and get back involved. And, um, 
So we literally lost everything. Kirk lost his health. He lost his ability to do all the things that he just shared with you guys. We lost our home. We lost vehicles. We lost our business. We had no way to take care of ourselves anymore. But God took care of us. We didn't have any income. You know, that whole first year we were in Belize, we really didn't have income because startup businesses are not going to make a profit. <clears throat> when we came home, we spent the next year and a half, well, from July until December of the next year with no income until we could get Kirk's disability approved. There was a long period of time where all we could do is just say, you know what, God, whatever you decide, it's up to you. And he took better care of us than we could ever take care of ourselves. And we didn't lack for anything. No, we still don't. We still don't. And we have learned that we can trust God because every time there was a need, something came available to us. Kirk had a tooth that had to be taken care of and the teeth, his teeth are not covered by the VA. Um, and I probably should explain that a little bit. He, he is a retired vet, disabled vet, sorry. Um, but when we, we had never signed up for the medical use, we didn't need it before. And so it was not until we came back to Oklahoma that we actually started going to the VA for the first time. Um, anyway, so, you know, there was a lot of things that were just kind of up in the air, but God took care of us all along the way. And, and when, now when we look backwards at it, we can see God's hand in all of it. Yeah, but... <clears throat> God has provided everything for us. Right. We no longer try to drive the, the car, per se. You know, we're the passengers, right. and God's the driver. Right. You know, we let Him lead, and we follow. Mm -hmm. You know, and too many people like to say that, well, I'm going to turn my problems over to the Lord, but then they take them back. Oh, yeah. Or they pick and choose what they're going to turn over to the Lord and let him handle it instead of just giving it all over to him and being faithful and saying, God, you will provide. You say it, it's going to happen. Right. And then there's the other side that we too often want him to work in our time frame. Right. And God's time is not our time. And you can't fool yourself and say that uh, God... I want you to do this for me, and I really need it. And really, all it is is just a lust of items. You know, if you could just give me this car, I could do a much better job of getting to church on Sunday. And in the whole mean, in the back of your head, it's really, I want this fancy new car because it makes me look cool. <laughs> you know, it's just, we need to stop being so consumed with the things of this life and right. focus more on what about after this life? Right. You know, when you die, everything that you've, you've told people here on the earth, well, now's judgment time. He's going to tell you whether or not you were really fooling anybody or not. <laughs> That's the truth. So when Kirk talked about not holding on to, or to, you know, as Christians, you know, we give things to God. One of the nights that he was in the hospital, we had had a, Several really bad, bad, bad nights. And God did a couple of things in that hospital that just blew my mind. I mean, you know, he let me know he was there going through all those struggles, the nights that he had fevers and, and he wasn't responding to me or the nurses or anybody else. And I was scared or I was, you know, there was days that I just cried all day long when everybody else was gone. Everybody had gone back home to Oklahoma and I was there alone. And that's what I did. And um, anyway, so... 
we had a nurse one night that named Chichi from Nigeria, and she basically told me one night, God already has the victory. As Christians, we take we say things and we give it to God and then we take it back. She told me, quit taking it back. Mm-hmm. And so we've got many, many, many more things that we could share with you guys. And we're will in the And future. we're going to continue to share these podcasts and we're gonna share them and we're gonna update them on our page. But right now it's time to go and um call it a night but we just we wanted to tell you guys our whole entire testimony together we wanted you to hear it from our voices in a in a complete way and we are grateful that you listened and we are hoping that god blesses you with it and encourages you with it and as we go throughout these next however many weeks that god asks us to do this we will we're going to share as much of it as we can with you the things that we've learned over this last year and a half to two years and we're going to hope that god uses it for his glory and that's really our whole goal is this is there's nothing that we did on our own none of the stuff that has taken place in our lives has been us it's all been god yeah it's all been him and we just want to honor him the best we can so uh we call ourselves sunrise sunset ministries we are or sunset sunrise Ministries. sorry mm-hmm. i said it backwards yeah. um the next time we do this kirk's going to explain why yeah But for now, we're going to call it a night. We hope that God blesses you. We hope that he gives you a peace tonight. And we look forward to sharing more. And we hope that you tune in for the next one. Yes. God bless. Thanks.